welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Um, so we are in week four of our Advent series, and uh, if you are new, we, uh, each week we invite an artist and a writer to come and, uh, with something that they've prepared to share. Uh, we've been doing this series for, I think, five years or so. Uh, so the Advent Art Series, it's one of my favorites every year. So I'm going to invite Wendy to come, and she's going to share a little bit about her piece uh, over here, and then Hannah will come and share a poem that she's written. So Wendy and Hannah. Hi, I'm Wendy Bartell. Um, I'm a visual artist, and I currently create out of my studio in West St. Paul, or apartment, actually. Um, (laughs) Anyway, um, when I got invited to create a piece for this series, I started thinking about the posture of waiting. And two types of waiting and two postures came to mind. The first is illustrated in my figure on the left. Um... It's a long and tired waiting. It's the kind of waiting that has begun to give in to disappointment, discouragement, hopelessness, and even despair. The wait has been so long that she has lost sight of her desired coming. She's painted in a blue shadow to symbolize her sadness and loss of hope. The second posture can be described as anticipation. It is the active expectation and leaning into what is longed for. There is a movement of faith based not on what is, but what will soon be. As the figure progresses toward the light, color is restored to symbolize the light and hope that have enveloped her. She holds on to her sister, encouraging her with what she sees. In this painting, the girls are waiting for rain, because to me, rain symbolizes the coming of God with his life, renewal, and hope. I tend to fluctuate between these two postures during times of waiting, but I always pray that God will enlighten me with hope so that I can move forward in anticipation of his grace to come. May you also find yourself pressing on through your waiting times, encouraged with the promise of hope of Christ's coming today and through to the last day. Thank you, Wendy. My name is Hannah Peterson, and I am a student at the University of Northwestern, and I will be graduating with a degree in creative writing. Um, This poem I'm going to read today is not necessarily a personal poem, but it is a poem that is trying to get at the moment in someone's life where there is a lot of anticipation and longing, and especially within the church setting. Um, this poem could seem very hopeless. It's not meant to be hopeless. It's just inviting you to, to wonder. It's been said that silence from God can feel like separation. And um, I think there's something at work, actually, within that silence. And so, without further ado, a poem for someone. The pulpit rains drought, and the culture spits droop. Verbs mix and match to wrong nouns. We're chaired on religion, drummed on doctrine. A gurgling praise, a spurting habit, a mute scream. Chaos and success, Hauser the student, the teacher, the brand, Arceaux, Arroyos. This feeling is not meant to stay. 
Why do I give half a damn? I flail from bridges I've reared. I inhale rivers I've entrenched. I abide under the tombstone. Are you here? Are you here? Do you read the tombstones as you pass, Lord? Thank you. Good morning, friends. My name is Elaine Timchek, if we haven't met, and I'm part of the core team and have been focusing on our community outreach and global outreach efforts. And today, I want to introduce you guys to Cheryl. Cheryl is the executive director at Joseph's Coat. And um, Cheryl is just here to share a little bit with us. Cheryl, why don't you tell everyone, what is Joseph's Coat? Joseph's Coat is a free store for the working poor, homeless, and anyone who is needy. And we serve communities throughout the Twin Cities. They come from suburbs. They come from this area. We welcome everyone. And it's just a place that was started 25 years ago to provide um, an area of dignity and respect for people who needed clothing. So we provide clothing for men, women, and children. We're totally supported by the community. We are not part of any agency. We are not subsidized by the government. So for 25 years, community has supported Joseph's Coat. Cheryl, where is Joseph's Coat? Well, it's right around the corner on <laughs> Armstrong and Bay on West 7th and uh, not far from here. Yeah. So who are the people, you, you mentioned this a little bit, tell us a little bit more, who are the people that you're seeing on a weekly basis? Well, we see uh, just about any type of person you can think of. We have 400 people come through in a day to shop, and we have uh, immigrants who come from, the most recent immigrants are the Karini people, and they came to this country. They don't know anything about winter. They are, their kids come in bathrobes and flip-flops, so we service immigrants who are new to the community, and we ser serve uh, many homeless or addicts and have other problems, mentally ill people who just aren't getting help. And a lot of people just like us who have, for some reason or another, become ill or something has happened in their lives and they lose everything they have and they can no longer afford to pay for clothing. They can only afford to basically get rent and hopefully something to eat. So every race, every religion... Anyone you can think of, they yeah. walk through our doors. And Cheryl, tell us, what are the biggest needs for Joseph's Coat right now? Right now, our biggest needs are hygiene products. So basic shampoo, conditioner, uh, body wash, they think is just they've gone to heaven if they get body wash instead of a bar of soap. Uh, feminine products, all the um, diapers are huge. They just can't afford to buy these things, so... These necessities are something that they really need. And then um, also, for example, if you would bring in a package of men's crew socks, they don't get the whole package. They get one pair of socks per week, and they stand in line to get them. So underwear and socks that are new are a really big deal because they do wear used underwear. Thank you. Okay, well, church, thank you. Um, we're going to be just trying to 
start helping and working with Joseph's goat. I mean, it's our neighbor, you know? And so I want to encourage you, starting next week, we're just going to have a place in the back um, where you can bring in the donations and things that Cheryl has mentioned. So we're going to really start focusing on hygiene items. If you travel, Cheryl and I were talking about this, if you travel and, you know, you're staying at hotels, if you can bring back the toiletries, the small sizes, bring them back. Fill up your bag and bring it every Sunday. Um, I want to challenge you that for, you know, if you are going shopping, pick up that extra bottle of shampoo. Um, Pick up an extra bar of soap and bring that in um, so that we can bless our neighbors. Um, at the Discover Awaken booth, there's some information on Joseph's coat, so you can pick that up, that information as well. And you'll be hearing from me and, you know, the weekly and other things about various times that we're going to try to set up to volunteer Joseph's coat and just continue that partnership. So thank you, Cheryl, for being here this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you. Shampoo is better than conditioner. <laughs> That's an Adam Sandler reference, if you weren't aware of that. Shampoo is my dog. The people at Sheridan, the uh, hotels, they're going to be calling for us, but that's going to be awesome. (laughs) So, friends, if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 7. As you do that, I'll let you know that I was reminded this morning by Facebook that I have, uh, it was 10 years ago today that I got on Facebook, guys. Yep. I mean, how did we do life without it? How was our lives meaningful and significant without Facebook? That's what I want to ask this morning. I don't even know. Uh, Acts chapter 7. We're in week 4 of our Advent series, and uh, we have been walking through this season. Uh, We've looked at darkness and uh, the cry that comes out uh, in Exodus chapter 2 with the Israelites, and last week, desire and longing. And so this week, I want to talk about waiting Um, So if you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to stand. We're going to begin in verse 20 of Acts 7. This is the recounting of a story that happens back in Exodus chapter 3 and following. So it says this, At that time Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, and so he went to, the defense, to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using, them to res- using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert, in the, in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come and I will send you back to Egypt. Pray with me. God, as we turn to the scriptures this morning, uh, it's always our intent that you might, uh, that we might hear you and that you might speak. Uh, that you would take these words that uh, were written so long ago that you would make them new and fresh for us this morning. I pray that as we uh, take one more journey and one more step 
uh, on this path of Advent, that um, God, wherever we are found this morning, whether that's in waiting or darkness or longing or desire or, uh, or in light, um, I pray that you would um, be clear um, as you speak, that you would be near to us, and um, God, that whatever happens here this morning would bring honor to you. Uh, we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> So just for a few minutes, I want you to try to imagine what it might be like to be Moses in this story, right? This is, of course, the, the, the recounting of what happens in the book of Exodus. Um, and so Moses was, uh, he grew up the son of the richest man in the entire world at the time. Egypt was the largest empire around. He, uh, there was nothing that was not afforded to Moses. He had the best education. He had the most technology uh, in the human Uh, in human history at that point, at his fingertips. He had the best food available to him, served on platters for him. He was protected from every enemy and every possible danger. He was the son of the king of the world, basically. Uh, And then he becomes a person of influence, if you know the story. He he actually holds a position in Pharaoh's kind of ruling, uh, his his empire. So he's a part of the the ruling empire and the reigning empire of the, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And you don't get this kind of position by watching YouTube videos and playing video games, right? Uh, like we know from Scripture and other, uh, what Scripture says in some of his actions, that Moses was a person of passion, he was a, he was a person of strength, he was a person of, uh, of influence. Uh, he, he kills this Egyptian guy and then gets found out, and he ends up fleeing. So he leaves, he turns his back on all this, he walks away from all this, and he goes, if you remember the story, to a well, where he meets a woman who invites him over for dinner, um, which is what you do when you go to a well, you get invited over for dinner. And then he ends up marrying this woman, and he spends the next 40 years as, uh, in the wilderness as a shepherd for his father-in-law, which is what every sort of ambitious young man is looking to do. Remember, his father-in-law is a nomad. He's living on like the backside of Nowheresville. Uh, this is an insignificant place and an insignificant role in the world. So you've just gone from being the son of the king of the world, basically, having a a seat at the table where the emperor of the world uh, eats and sits to being a shepherd uh, in no man's land, literally. And it's 40 years that he spends out here. He's 40 when he leaves Egypt. He's 40 when God shows up at a burning bush. 40 years before God says, go and get my people out of Egypt. 40 years of waiting, 40 years of preparation, 40 years of looking after sheep, which by the way, are not very smart and fun to be around after 40 years of ruling the world. And if scripture is consistent, and I would argue that it is, this number 40 is very important. Often it means that something is dying and something is being born. So as we think about Moses and this waiting, this preparation that's happening with him in the desert, we have to ask what's dying and what's being born. He spends 40 years in waiting before God calls him to deliver his people. One could argue he spends 40 years waiting for the call that becomes the purpose for his life. Or at least the most significant moment in his life. He's 80 by that point, folks. He's old. Like, really old. So he spends 40 years waiting in the desert for this call. Which is bad news for a a group of people who don't like waiting. Right? And a culture who doesn't like waiting. I mean, we're in the holidays, yeah? Right? Have you guys been to Target lately? Crikey! I mean, it's just crazy out there. And we've all been in, the, in that line where, you know, you're standing at Starbucks, you're standing at Target, and the said checkout person decides to just, like, take her down a couple gears. 
right? And the, and the person behind you, you sort of hear this audible sigh, like, <sighs> and then the shifting and the changes jingling in the pockets and the kind of encroachment, and you can feel the person like getting closer and closer to you, at which point you want to turn around and say, dude, just settle down and stop breathing on my neck. But we don't like to wait. We don't like to wait at all. We hate waiting. We live in a culture that doesn't like to wait. So what does it mean to say that the entire story of the scriptures is full of people who waited? It's not just a one-off kind of thing. It's not just one or two people found themselves in waiting in the scriptures. Over and over and over and over again, we find people waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting Joseph waited 13 years from when he was sold into slavery to when he finally was ruling the Pharaoh's household and his brothers come back. Abraham waited 25 years before, from the time he received the promise to the time Isaac shows up. Jesus waited 33 years before he did what he came to do. Simeon and Anna and Luke too are found waiting at the temple for the better part of their lives, waiting for the redemption and the consolation of Israel. And on and on and on. Samuel, Hannah, Noah, Hagar, David, Zechariah, Elizabeth, they all waited. And it seems like our lives are full of waiting too. Waiting seems to be a necessary part of the scriptures. And it seems to be a necessary part of our lives. So we can either sort of make peace with it, or just continue to bang our heads against the proverbial wall, trying to eliminate it or speed it up. Right, which is what we do often when we're waiting. Like, speed this thing up, or let's try to figure out how to stop it altogether. Which, of course, we know is futile and foolish, because it's just part of life. So I want to talk about waiting this morning, and I want to ask two questions. The questions I want to ask are, what does waiting expose? When we're in a season of waiting, what's exposed? What's shown? And then, when we're in a season of waiting, what does it produce? So what's produced when we have to wait? And before I do that, before I jump in, I want to just say this. I know that this topic is not a very easy topic. It's very nuanced, and it's not simple. It's not black and white. It's not you're waiting for X because you did X or you didn't do X, right? Waiting includes all kinds of variables in our lives. And so I'm not attempting to give a silver bullet this morning, which would only be one more attempt to speed it up or eliminate it. I'm not going to do that. And I don't know all of the stories here this morning. And so I probably will say something this morning that you may disagree with or you may find to be just not enough. And I get it. I get that. What I want to try to do is be honest with the scriptures and also I want to try to bear witness to your waiting, to wherever it is that you find yourself, which is a razor's edge. So cut me some slack. (laughs) As Nicolas Cage said in The Rock, cut me some slack! But give me some grace, because this is a, this is a tough one. So what does waiting expose? Uh, I don't think I have to work hard to, to convince you that waiting, when we find ourselves in waiting, it often brings things to the surface. If you hang out with a young child, this becomes very clear. Ask them to wait for something, and all sorts of things just sort of rile up to the surface. And you and I, what about us as adults? We've, we've mastered the art of cover-up, um, some better than others. But waiting, if you get close enough, I think it, it exposes things in us. So I want to start by saying I think waiting exposes our fear and our lack of trust and our desire for control, and I think that they're all connected. I think sometimes when we have to wait, I know in my life when I've had to wait, what rises to the top very quickly is my fear. My fear of failure, my fear that I don't have what it takes, 
my fear of being alone or abandoned, a fear that I'm not worthy of something or that I don't, I don't deserve something or that I'm not desired. Waiting brings the fears that I think live in the darkness right up to the top, right up to the surface. And it exposes them. Waiting turns on the lights in the room where all my fears live. And I don't think that's a bad thing. There's a, an author named Brene Brown. Anybody been, read Brene Brown out there? Yeah, a few of you, yeah. She's getting quite popular. She talks about, like, naming them. I think when we wait, it exposes our fears, which allows us to just name them. Oh, fear of failure. There you are. It's nice to see you. I'm not really going to let you do anything today, but I, I acknowledge you. When we have to wait for something, it exposes the fear that we have around things, and, and we can name it and then live in the light of it instead of it being in the dark. So I think fear exposes our, or waiting exposes our fear, and for many of us, it exposes a lack of trust. Because in waiting, we have to hand something over. We have to hand over the reins to someone or something else that's outside of us. And we find it difficult to wait for something. We immediately take back the trust we may have given. Think about a Brahmin Sarai, right? They get this promise from God in Exodus, uh, excuse me, in Genesis. And they wait, they wait, they wait. And then when, when things get difficult and, they, and it's not happening, what happens? Hagar, come here. This is a really, really interesting story. I don't mean to, to make light of it, but a lack of trust, right? It gets to a point where it shows that. And for many of us, that, that sort of leads into a desire for control. Many of us, controlling a situation or a relationship is a form of comfort. When something's outside of our control and we can't fix it or we can't stop it or we can't change it, we immediately try to grab onto it so that we can secure it or do what we need to so that we feel better, so that we don't feel stress or anxiety about whatever it is. So I think waiting exposes this fear and lack of trust and desire to control, and they're all connected. I think fear also exposes our motives. Uh, I was a youth pastor for a really long time, and I'd always have these kids who would come, and they'd say, oh, hey, I want to be in the worship band. I want to be playing the worship band, or I want to sing on the worship team, which is a <laughs> Have you all been to youth group before, right? And you get the kids up there, and it's like, sweetheart, you can't sing. Like, it's terrible, right? And nobody has the guts to say it to her or him, and it's just like everybody's in the back going, oh, my gosh, and we're at the soundboard going, just turn her up in the monitors or turn him up in the monitors so he, can't hear him. he can hear himself but nobody else can hear him. It's a real disaster. We should talk about that in seminary, what to do with the kid who can't sing. <laughs> but either way, right, these kids come, and they say, I want to I be, be on the worship team. And I would say, tell you what, um, how about you wrap cords, or you stack chairs, or you do something and serve like in the, so nobody sees you for a while, because I want to know, what's your motive? Why do you desire to do this? Because leading the, the community of God in worship is about them, not you. And so I want to know, and almost every time when I'd say, I'll tell you what, why don't you come early next week and help roll some cords or help stack some chairs, and inevitably, crickets, Right? Because when we have to wait for something, it ex often exposes our motives. And sometimes they're good. They're not always bad. But I think seasons of waiting often expose what's really happening on the inside. I think sometimes waiting exposes the fact that it's just not time yet. Do you guys remember that when you were a child and you'd ask your parent for something and they'd say, not yet? Do you remember that? 
It just drives me batty. And, you, and then, of course, your next question is, then when? You know, like, when's it going to happen? You know, when's Christmas? My kids keep asking. Like, you've got an advent calendar. Just count the days, baby. It's right there, you know. When's Christmas? Not yet. When's it coming? Not yet, not yet, not yet. Gosh, I hate that answer. But the longer I live, the more I realize there's wisdom there. Not yet. We live in a world where there are cycles, there are rhythms, there are uh, these seasons, and they're there for a reason. Sometimes they provide needed rest or replenishment or growth. The answer to our questions in waiting often, it's, it's not time yet. Which I get isn't a satisfying answer, right? I've been there before. I've waited, and when somebody says, maybe it's just not time yet, you're like, shut up, you know? I don't want to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. It's just not time yet. But sometimes there's more work to be done in us. Sometimes there's more rest that's needed for what's about to come. Sometimes there's more healing that needs to happen. Sometimes it's It's just not time, which sort of provokes two questions. One being, do we trust that there is a God who knows when it's time and that that God is good? Do we trust that there is a God who knows when it's time and that that God is good? Because sometimes it's not time yet, and that's hard to hear, but do we trust the God who knows when it's time and do we trust that that God is good? And maybe secondly, can we be gentle with ourselves in our waiting? When we find ourselves in waiting, oftentimes I think we move immediately to, why am I, I must have done something to deserve this, right? Because waiting is bad, and if I'm waiting, then I'm not ready, or something happened, or I'm not doing something right, or I'm not, I did something wrong, and so we immediately go to beating ourselves up because we're waiting. Maybe it's just not time yet, and it will be soon. Can we, like, collectively agree to be gentle with ourselves when we find each other in waiting? Two questions. What's exposed? What does it produce? Last of what it exposes. I think it exposes sometimes that we don't see everything. And this is one of those ones where when somebody says it to you, it's really not helpful. But I think that, again, I think there's wisdom here. I mean, if you've ever had a child come up to you and like want something so badly, and as a parent, you're like, sweetie, this thing is not going to bring you life. I guarantee you, I know, I've done that, I've been there, and they just can't see it. Or they don't see all of the financial implications of whatever it is that they want, and you as the parent are like, listen, it's just not going to happen. You don't have the view that I have from here. And I think sometimes we just don't see everything that's happening. There are seeds that are beneath the ground that have not yet come out of the ground. And they're there, but they're just not visible yet. There's this passage in the book of Daniel, where Daniel is praying and praying and praying and praying, and then this angel comes to him. It's in Daniel chapter 10. And the angel says to him, listen, Daniel, I have heard your prayers. I have listened, and I came the moment that you prayed them, but I was delayed by the prince of Persia. Who the heck is the prince of Persia? Well, if you study Daniel, one would argue that essentially what's happening here is there's a whole nother realm 
of things that are going on that we don't see. And I'm not one who's looking for the devil under every rock. I, I remember this guy, Jerry Pipes. I was, he, was, he was this guy at my church that I grew up at, and he says, he'd always ask me, Michael, what are you reading these days? What are you reading these? Wonderful, wonderful old guy. And he'd say, so I said, Jerry, I'm reading This Present Darkness. Do you guys remember Frank Peretti? Yeah. I mean, okay, fine, right? I was in high school. I'm like, I'm reading This Present Darkness. And Pipes is like, now you listen here, Michael. Don't you go looking for the devil under every rock, because you'll find him. Oh my gosh! <laughs> okay, okay. I don't. I'm not looking for the devil under every rock here. But I think that there, are, there is, there is a reality, a spiritual reality that you and I we don't see every day. That's real. That's happening out there. And this angel says to Daniel, "I tried. I was coming, and I was delayed, and now I'm here." Sometimes we just don't have the whole view. I think sometimes when we wait, it exposes that reality. So it exposes things. It exposes our lack, of, our lack of trust, our fear, desire for control, sometimes our motives, sometimes it's, not, it's just not time. But what does it produce? When we wait, does it produce anything in us? A couple of thoughts as we close. I want to suggest that waiting produces anticipation. When we have to wait for something, it produces anticipation. And waiting produces anticipation or tension. It's like... A, so when I was a kid, we used to go to this place called the Boom Site. It was this uh, really cool spot on the St. Croix River. It's where they used to like crane the, the timbers over the river and drop them in and send them down. So we'd go to this place. Loved it. There were all these little natural springs that would bubble up. And so we as kids, we'd go down there exploring. And every time, inevitably, we'd try to like dam up these springs, which of course is a futile task or a very foolish. You can't do it. You can't stop it. But we would try. So we would take these rocks and we'd spend all morning trying to like build these dams to hold back the river. And the, t- the water would grow and it would grow and it was like this tension was growing. But then inevitably it would break and of course there would be a release. And the water would go down. Waiting produces anticipation. Waiting is a bit like this. It, it's like, what if I said it this way? Without waiting, there's no joy. Joy and delight and happiness is a release of something in us, and it can't happen unless there's waiting and anticipation that precedes it. What if you got everything you desired exactly when you wanted it? Like right when you desired something, your desire was fulfilled. There would be no joy. There would be no delight because there's no waiting and there's no anticipation and there's no release. You can't have joy without waiting. I mean, do you remember that moment, parents in the room, when you saw your baby for the first time after that long journey of 40 weeks of waiting and waiting and waiting and then there they are. You can't have that without waiting. Waiting produces anticipation, and it's all part of the story. It's all part of the process. You can't have joy without waiting. Lastly, I would maybe say this. Waiting produces intimacy. So this last week, uh, my wife and I were sitting on the couch, and we were discussing like, just exactly what on earth is happening around here. And I had this moment where maybe for the first time, I, have never, I haven't felt it this way yet as the pastor of Awaken. There was a, uh, like a sacred fear and holy like, reverence that sort of welled up in me when I started thinking about it. And I said these words. I said, Laura, what 
exactly have we wandered into at Awaken? What is happening around here? I cannot tell you the number of people that I have talked to who have said to me, I don't know how to explain it, Micah, but they're just, I walk in this room and there is like something unexplainable. There is a sense, there is a spirit about what's happening here that is just, I don't know how to explain it. I've, I, time, like multiple people I've talked to, I'm like, tell me about, you're new to Awaken, talk about it, tell me. And this is the story that I get. I don't know what is happening around here, And then I was sitting at Lucky's 13 this last week. I'm waiting for somebody. I'm writing this sermon in the bar. (laughs) And I started remembering this question. This question that I've been asking for like 10 years. And the question has been, God, is there more? Like, why doesn't it grow? When will it grow? Is it me What's wrong with me? Why isn't it happening? And there was this waiting that I have experienced over the last 10 years. And I'm, I'm literally, I'm sitting in Lucky's and I just started like weeping. Because I realized like I have not waited alone. That God and I have gone on this journey of waiting. And whatever God was doing and preparing, like here we are. And I felt this intimacy that I have experienced with God over the last 10 years in this question that I just have been, it is everywhere in my journal. And so I want to suggest that waiting produces a potential for intimacy. That as we wait, and maybe this is the promise of Advent, that our waiting and our longing, it is not done alone. That you are not alone that as hard as waiting is for whatever it is that we're waiting for, you are not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. I want to invite us to a time of silence. And um, we do this every week, trusting that God's uh, got more to say than I've prepared And whether your waiting this morning exposes something in you or it's maybe producing something in you, I want to invite you to maybe ask this question as you, in a moment of silence. God, what do you have for me in my waiting? What do you have for me in my waiting? So let me offer a word of prayer and uh, a time of silence. God, as we enter into this few moments this morning in the chaos of our lives and of this season, and as we think about this, this idea of waiting and maybe what it exposes in us or what it might be producing in us, I pray that you would give us uh, each the courage necessary to go down this path, which is hard sometimes. And as we ask this question, God, what do you have for us in our waiting? Friends, before Ed uh, shares a benediction, um, he's just going to read a psalm over us. I was thinking about um, this journey that we've been on towards Advent, and I remember uh, the birth of our children. There were these, the weeks leading up to it, um, 
it was kind of this readying of ourselves and sort of putting everything in its place and creating space for this thing that was about to be born. And I feel like as a community, um, that's what we've been trying to do in the season of Advent. So I hope that we are ready for whatever God might do and birth in us um, at Christmas. So I'm going to invite you to stand and receive this benediction. Hello. Remember, please remember that I, Ed, and another are um, members of the prayer team, and we're here for you to pray with you after the gathering. Oh, Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul? with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemies have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes, or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying, We have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because you are good to me. Grace and peace. Find us online at www at awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.